Mark 11, verse number 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, it's not written, is, I'm sorry, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Now, let me stop there because this isn't in tonight's message, but I think we need to have it in our heads. I think it it comes out either the next message or the message after, depending on how long these get. Um, Fundamentally, the reason we have this behavior from the chief priests and the scribes and all of that at at its basis level is fear. They fear Jesus. They fear the people. We're going to see that several times through here. We see that they feared. Um, And that is in direct contradiction to what we as Christians ought to have in our lives because God says he's not given us a spirit of fear. Maybe, Maybe it's helpful when you have an enemy in this life, somebody who's not saved, somebody who's unregenerate. Maybe it's helpful to remember that a lot of people out there are what they are because of fear. They don't have the assurances that we have. They don't have the peace that we have. They don't have the grace that we have. Now, they're still responsible for their actions just like these were. But there's a lot of scared people out there. And so rather than responding to that in kind, if we offer them the one thing that dispels fear, and that's the hope, the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that can go a long way to helping us. In those, in those areas. Well, back to verse 18. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the people were was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. Father, would you help us tonight as we continue our study through Mark? We're moving quickly towards Jesus' death. And, uh, Father, I pray that you just help us to squeeze everything out of this that you'd have for us. Help me to rightly divide your word of truth. Help me to um, be faithful to the text and please you in everything I say tonight. And may Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, We found out last week that there's three lessons to be found in this portion of Mark chapter 11. And last week we talked about missing fruit missing fruit. Um, this fig tree was, was devoid of fruit. It was barren. And we learned some tremendous lessons from that. Then tonight, we're going to talk about the mystical fraud, the, the, the practice of Judaism at this point in the world was, was fraudulent. It was fraudulent. And Jesus exposes that. We're going to talk about that tonight. And then next, next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about mountain moving faith. And that's what he, he talks about there in verses 20 through, to, through 26. Well, the missing fruit, we saw a problem, we saw a pronouncement, and then we saw a picture, that picture being the nation of Israel. But there's certainly an application to us. But now tonight we're talking about the mystical fraud, 
the mystical fraud, this religious system that is set up and based out of Jerusalem, this which started out from the mind of God has now been so perverted and so misused and so abused that it bears virtually no resemblance to what Moses brought down from the mountain. It's interesting to me, uh, if you count up the, the commandments, the specific commandments that are in the law, you get a nice crisp, crisp 613 commandments. Now, they have ballooned into the thousands through rabbinic tradition and uh, oral tradition and so forth. You can't possibly get it all right. Of course, you couldn't when it was 613 either. That's the point. But Jesus comes into the temple, and by the way, don't forget, the temple belonged to him. He had every right to do anything he wanted to with that temple. It was his. It was his. But he comes in, and he cleanses the temple for the second time. The first time he did it was in John chapter 2. It was also at Passover time. And he does so for many of the same reasons that he did the first time, but we do well to take a close look. I I was tempted to just kind of gloss over this because we've already been through this in other messages, but um, I'm glad I didn't because the Lord gave me some things I think will be a help to us. There's two things we need to process tonight. Number one is what Jesus did, and number two is why he did it. What he did and why he did it. All right, so let's start with what Jesus did. What Jesus did. We're in Mark chapter 11 and verse number 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. The first thing he did was displacement. He displaced some people. You know, when, when, when somebody comes in and, and takes over a country and refugees take off, they've been displaced. They've been moved from where they normally would be. Jesus moved some people from where he normally would have been. He displaces them. It says he cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. Because anyone that was conducting the business that they were conducting at the temple has one of several possible issues or perhaps more than one. Okay, first of all, they were abusing and perverting the purpose of the temple. The temple was there to worship, not to worship the temple, but to worship at the temple. It was not there to make money. It was not a business. Now, here's what would happen. People would come from all over for these feasts, and in particular the Passover, and many of them, many of them would not have the wherewithal to bring their sacrifice with them. And so they would purchase a sacrifice from these that bought and sold there at the temple. Well, if these people are going to do this, then let's make some money off of it. And so they sold these animals at exorbitant rates. They changed money because if you brought your temple offering, you could not bring the money that was from, because remember, Jews are coming from all over the world. And some of them are coming with denarii, and some of them are coming with Roman coins from here and Greek coins from over here. None of that was appropriate for the temple offering. You had to have that shekel. Actually, half shekel, I believe. Well, yeah, we got plenty of those. 
And here's what we'll do. We'll change your money out for you for a fee. And it was a whopper of a fee. So they're marking up sacrifices. They're marking up money changing. They're making all kinds of money. Who do you think got a kickback from that? The chief priests and the scribes. Annas and Caiaphas, who handed off the high priest at will, it seems like, were making all kinds of money. And Jesus displaced these folks because they had lost sight of the purpose of that place. I'll tell you what else they lost sight of, the picture of it. Now, some people, some people really did need this service. It was impossible for them to, to, to worship and to adequately um, fulfill the requirements of the Passover from where they were coming. And so they needed to buy a lamb there. But it got to where people did it as a matter of convenience. You got people that live in Jerusalem that are doing it. Rather than go through the trouble of raising the lamb and keeping it in your home and all that, we'll just buy one there. Problem is, that messes with the, uh, the picture of it. Because that Passover lamb was supposed to be a lamb that came from your family. It was supposed to be a lamb that not only was it a monetary sacrifice, it was an emotional sacrifice. Well, buying a lamb from somebody you don't even know, you've never even laid eyes on it, there's not much sacrifice there. So it messed with the purpose, it messed with the picture, but I'll tell you what else it did, it messed with the people of the temple. Because where this took place was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place that Gentiles could come. The Jews, to varying degrees, could go all over the temple area. You've got the court of women. You've got, you know, you've got all these areas that they can go into. The only place the Gentiles would go or could go was the court of the Gentiles, and now they couldn't because there was too much stuff going on there. And so the very people that needed to get near the temple, that needed to be evangelized, so to speak, we would say proselyted for them. Those people couldn't get anywhere close to the house of God because these people were filling up that area with their, their business. So Jesus displaced them. What else did he do? He did some displacement. He also did some dismantling. I had several D words I could use on this one. Destruction, demolition. I went with the, the tamer dismantling. Look what he says. He began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers. Now, a couple things. First of all, these tables are not what we have back here in the fellowship hall. These are not, you know, lifetime plastic folding tables. These are heavy, dense, well-made tables that are meant to last centuries. And Jesus goes in there and just starts throwing them over. By the way, do not try and paint me a picture of this waif-like, weak Jesus, because that guy can't throw over a table. My Jesus was a man's man, 
And there's two ways, three ways I know that. Number one, he never used his deity to accomplish this kind of thing. He threw over those tables as a man, not, not as God. Number two, he was an apprentice to his, his foster father, Joseph, who was a carpenter. That's hard work. He, he didn't have Milwaukee and DeWalt. He had hand tools and primitive ones at that. Number three, no other man survives the beating he took to get to the cross, except that he's man enough to take those licks and get there. So when you see them portray Jesus as this weak little thing, that's not the Christ of the Bible. Of this I'm convinced. Dismantling. At this moment, the time for preaching had passed. He took on the job of dismantling this operation in a very public way. Would it be reasonable to conclude that some of these tables, as they're flipped over, because of their size and because of their density, that maybe, just maybe, as they hit the stone pavement, they break? I think that's reasonable to conclude. He did some dismantling. I'll tell you what else he did. He did some disruption. Now, what's the difference between disruption and destruction? Disruption doesn't inflict permanent damage. It disrupts. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's read it. Verse, verse 15. They come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. The seats, not the tables. Why? The doves wouldn't survive it. They're in little cages, and if he throws that table over, it crushes the cages, it crushes the doves. So he disrupted without being destructive. The disruption was necessary, but destruction was not. And when we, when, we see, when we see godly disruption takes place, it minimizes innocent collateral damage. If somebody comes in with a disruptive spirit that hurts a lot of innocent people, that's not of God. That's not of God. Disruption is meant to disrupt those that are doing wrong, not those that are doing right. So what did Jesus do? We see displacement. We see dismantling. We see disruption. I'll tell you what else he did. He put up some detours. Okay. He overthrew the tables of the money changers, the seats of them that sold doves. Verse 16. And he would not suffer or allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Now what in the world is that? What are we talking about here? If you're in the city proper... And I wish I could, I should have put up some kind of a graphic for you on this. If you're in the city proper and you need to get to the Mount of Olives, easiest way to get there is shoot through the court of the Gentiles. If you're a Jew, because it will take you through some places that Gentiles can't go, but you can shoot through there and get to the other side quickly. My wife and I, when we went on our honeymoon, we 
We went to Las Vegas. We didn't get married in Vegas, but we went to Las Vegas for our honeymoon. I did not gamble a cent while I was there, not one. She did a ton, but I did not. Every casino had something in common. And though we didn't gamble, we did go and have meals and, you know, and we saw a couple of shows that were family friendly and that kind of thing. We did go do that. Every one of those casinos are designed that you have to walk through the casinos to get where you want to go. That's by design. That's what they want. Okay, so to, to go to go with you know to, to to go without doing that, you've got to go around entire blocks. And of course, us being spiritual and careful and all of that, we went through the casinos. And I just kept her by the hand. Come on, dear, let's go, let's go. And she just kept crying. It's just a roll of nickels. No, honey, come on, let's go. Now, follow me on this. This was a convenient pass-through for those who were headed elsewhere. And Jesus said, no, you're not just going to pass through here. That's not what this is for. Now, I don't know how he did this. Perhaps he took the tables he threw over and set up blockades. I don't know. But he kept people from passing through from one side to the other. So we see displacement. Uh, We see dismantling. We see disruption. We see detours. And then in the midst of all this melee, he still disciples people. Look at what it says. Jesus went to the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught. He taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Luke's, Luke's account of this, Luke 19.47, And he taught daily in the temple, but the chiefs and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So he is teaching and he is doing so successfully. They're listening. Would you notice this in his teaching and his discipling here? There's both positive and negative. The positive, my house shall be called a house of prayer, by the way, for all nations, including Gentiles. He's quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. But then he puts in the negative. But you've made it a den of thieves. And there he quotes from Jeremiah 7, 11. And by the way, teaching does involve the positive and the negative. If I'm effectively coaching somebody, I've got to tell them what they're doing right, and I've also got to tell them what they're doing wrong. If if I'm an effective teacher in the classroom, I've got to tell them where they're getting it right, and I've got to tell them where they're getting it wrong. The red pen is part of it. I mean, I'd, I'd love to just, you know, all these kids, guess what? Everybody gets an A. I love you so much. That's not teaching. That's not how it works. And Jesus, when he disciples them, he says a positive and a negative because it's all true. 
So we see some displacement, we see some dismantling, we see some disruption, some detours. He did some discipling. And you know what else he did? He did some doctoring. Now, we don't see this in Mark's account, but in Matthew 21, in his account, verse 14, in the midst of all this, it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, what do we take from that? Once again, in the middle of all this melee and throwing tables over and pushing chairs over and telling them to get out and you're not coming through here, he still taught and he still healed. What do we take from that? He never lost sight of his compassion. Never. So that's what he did. That's what he did. But here's the question we really want to ask. Why? He's about to go to the cross. Don't you think he knew that in just a couple of days all that stuff would be back? I mean, is it sometimes hard to get motivated to do something that you know is, is really just a pebble in the ocean? But he still did it. Why? Well, number one, he needed to change attitudes. You remember that he displaced some people whose attitudes had warped the temple experience. They had warped the purpose of the temple. They had gone, this had gone from being for those who prayed, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to those who prayed, P-R-E-Y-E-D. You've heard of predatory loans? They were predators here. And he had to change attitudes. They thought this was completely permissible. They messed up the picture of the temple. This business undermined the picture of sacrifice. And the people, this court was inaccessible by people that God wanted desperately to reach. And Jesus said, it's time to change some attitudes. Number two, his displacement changed attitudes. Number two, he needed to create awareness. That's why he did some dismantling. Jesus had preached a lot, and that is necessary, and that's critical. But at this particular juncture, at this particular point, he needed to do something more noticeable. He needed to create a stir, and they needed to be aware of how bad their error was. Um, let, Let me say this. I think we all know this, but just to make sure we all know this. At no point was Jesus ever out of control. At no point was he out of line. At no point did he even come near the the threshold of sin. Everything he did was righteously indignant and pleased God exactly as it should be. Okay, just like the first time he did it. All right. But Jesus understood that in this particular case, preaching is not going to get this done. I need to do something that makes them more aware. I do it every service. Sometimes I feel led rather than just talk to you like this. I talk to you like this. Why? Because I got to get this thing across. Now, I stop short of throwing tables over. 
But Jesus understood that awareness needed to be created. He needed to make a point. He needed, hey, to dismantle those things that made this sin easy to commit. They can't do this without tables. So he displaced so he could change attitudes. He dismantled to create awareness, and he disrupted to challenge actions. He threw those seats over. And in doing so, he's pointing specifically to these doves. These doves were intended for what group of people? The poor. In fact, Luke 2.24, Mary and Joseph, who were poor, what did they offer as the sacrifice in the temple? Two turtle doves. And so these doves were being sold at these exorbitant prices, and the poor people who desperately needed them could not get them and thus were kept from worship. And Jesus is saying, your actions are keeping people from getting closer to God. And I challenge that. And can I tell you, when people take advantage of situations like that, the innocent are the ones who are most quickly and often the most irrevocably hurt. The innocent. Just like those doves. You see, he displays some people to change attitudes. He dismantles some things to create awareness. He disrupted the situation to challenge actions. And you know what his detours were meant to do? Cultivate adoration. They'd reached a point that this area of the temple had become a throughway instead of a destination. Now, what do I mean by that? We're going to use the temple to get to where we want to go instead of stay at the temple and worship. Keep that in your head for a little bit, okay? What else did he do? He discipled. Why? He had to correct some assumptions. There were so many people that were crowded into that court purchasing doves, purchasing um, lambs, changing out their money, and they assumed, they thought that this was normal and even acceptable. And Jesus had to correct those wrong assumptions. The rank and file people needed to be exposed to the truth. See, you think, well, the court of the Gentiles, you know, that's... That's the least holy place in the temple complex. No, it's not. There's two significant things that we know of that happened in that area. Here's the first one. That's the area where Solomon would have prayed when he dedicated the temple in the first place. Now, of course, it's a different temple now. But if you look at the, if you look at the setup of the temple complex, that is where Solomon's royal porch would have been. And that is where Solomon prayed. That is where Solomon said, if my people, which are called by my name, as he's communicating, God's communicating this truth through him. And that's where the fire came down and fell on that place, and the priest couldn't even go in because the glory of God was so thick. 
That was the spot. But there's something else that happened at that spot. In the year that King Uzziah died, I beheld the Lord high and lifted up. That's where Isaiah would have been. In Isaiah 6, when he is ushered in a vision into the very throne room of God. That's a holy spot. And these people are using it for all manner of unholy deeds and the people think it's okay. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to correct that assumption. He displaced that he might change attitudes. He dismantled that he might create awareness. He disrupted that he might challenge actions. He detoured that he might cultivate adoration. He discipled that he might correct assumptions. And he doctored that he might communicate affection. I can't think of anything that more quickly and clearly communicates love than trying to help somebody find healing. And in the midst of all this, I added it up, and if Jesus lived 33 years on the dot, then he lived approximately 1 billion, 40 million seconds. And not for one of those did Jesus ever stop communicating love. What about when he was calling them vipers? Why did sepulchers? He's still communicating love. On the cross? Very much so. And even here. Jesus isn't doing something to people. He's doing something for people. When I correct my kids, I'm not doing it to them. I'm doing it for them. When I preach, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me and for you. And Jesus, no matter what he's done, through all of eternity, he's never stopped communicating love. So what? All right, Andy. That's nice. We've worked on what Jesus did. We've worked on why he did it. Now, what do I do with this? What do I take from this? I'm not Jewish. I wasn't at the temple. No. But here's a question we need to ask ourselves. This is the Wednesday night crowd. Okay. So I think we're most suited to handle what I'm about to ask. And it's, let me tell you something. When I first read this question, and it's not original to me, but it, it hit me like a, just a thud of a ton of bricks. If physically Jesus entered our place of worship, what would he want to change? What would he want to change in us individually? And what would he want to change in us corporately? 
Let me tell you what I think would happen. I think the first thing he'd do is if he found anybody whose attitudes were hurting the purpose, the picture, and the people of this church, he'd give them an option of either get right or get displaced. If you're not in line with the purpose, picture, and people of this church, why are you here? I'm not asking that of you. I'm just saying that's what the Holy Spirit would do. Because is it not reasonable to expect that we're all here to advance the purpose, picture, and people of the church? Sure. And if that's not why we're here, then what are we doing? I'm sorry to say that there have been churches everywhere that have had incidents and situations in which you had people there that were there for all the wrong reasons and God had no choice but to displace them. You know what else he might have to do? The structures that we use to do things the wrong way, he might come in and dismantle them. He might not throw over our tables, but he may, he may throw over the stuff that we're doing that we're putting more trust in than his power. Because he needs to create awareness in us of just where we are. God has a way of taking the familiar things that we lean on and putting them out of the way so we have to focus on him again. See, one of the problems that a lot of churches have is we don't realize where we are. You know what else he might do? He might disrupt our norms. He might challenge actions that we've gotten used to but are actually hurting innocent people. I'll tell you what else he might do. He might detour us. Because this church is not something that we pass through on the way to some other goal. We're meant to come here and worship. Worship isn't the method. Worship is the goal. And yet how many people just use church as a pass-through? Oh, church is great for weddings. Church is great for funerals. Church is great for the little Christian school over there. Church is great for something for my kids to do. Church is great for chunk or treat. Church is great for back-to-school bash. Church is great for fellowships. No. This church is here that we might fulfill the Great Commission and worship Him in doing so. That's why it's here. And if all we're doing is passing through, God will put up roadblocks and give us detours to get us where we're supposed to be. You know what else he'll do? He'll disciple us. He'll teach us. And he'll endeavor to correct assumptions and faulty teaching that we've accepted wrongly. I'm 47 years old. And for all but... Probably for all but seven of those years... I've been in independent fundamental Baptist churches. 
the first five years of my life, my parents were Salvation Army officers, and I'd say liberally, two years of my life, I looked around in other denominational structures. So 40 out of 47 years, I've been an independent fundamental Baptist. In 40 years, I've been able to take a step back and look. And I've learned two things. By God's grace, we've been right about a lot of things. But we've also been wrong about some things, too. And there are just some things that I got taught my whole life that I just accepted. I just assumed they were right because this preacher said it and that college said it and everything else. And you know what I've come to learn? They were wrong. And God has a way of coming in and shaking that kind of stuff up and correcting those assumptions. we got entire generations of people that won't darken the door of a church because we placed all our faith in an assumption instead of the Word of God. Sorry, but that's just where it is, y'all. And Jesus came in and he said, nope, this is not normal. This is the ground that Isaiah saw me. This is the ground that I sent the fire from heaven to answer to Solomon's prayer. This is meant for more than what you're using it for. So he'll correct some assumptions. And then I'm glad to tell you, you know what else he'll do? He'll doctor us. He'll heal our hurts. And he'll love us. So I think that should be our prayer tonight. Because while he's not here physically, we can't see him. Is he here? I would assume at least two of us in here are gathered in his name. What's he say if that's the case? They're mine in the midst of them. 